Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, when Beeson Divinity School was founded in 1988, our founding benefactor, Ralph Waldo Beeson, gave us three mandates. He wanted us to follow. He wanted us to be a school that was evangelical, committed to the historic Christian faith. He wanted us to be a school that was interdenominational, and he also wanted us to be a school that had a focus on the world Christian mission. And that third element has been so important in the life and growth of Beeson Divinity School. Our global center is an expression of that. And every year we have a couple of special weeks in which we focus on the World Christian Mission and our participation in it. And this has been one of those weeks we've been honored to have with us Dr. Paul Borthwick, and I have the privilege of having a conversation with him today about his own important role in awakening the church to this reality. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Paul. Thank you, sir. Now, I want you to begin just telling us a little bit about who you are. I discovered that you are a New Englander. I spent seven years in Boston, so that rings a bell with me. Tell us who you are. Where you came from? I, I was raised in a Christian family in a suburb of Boston called Arlington, or as we would more properly call it, Arlington. <laughs> and uh, and I've lived in Massachusetts all of my life. I uh, was never even out of the country till I was 24 years old. I studied in the western part of our state, in Ma- University of Massachusetts. I went twice for master's and doctoral work at Gordon-Conwell. My wife is from Cambridge. Uh-huh. And uh, and she went, to, at least out of state, she went to the University of New Hampshire. So in missiological language, we are indigenous. Yeah. And uh, But it's from that platform that we've had this awesome privilege of being involved in the global church. And in that context, I joined the staff of a church called Grace Chapel, which was in the 1970s and 80s just exploding with growth, went from 300 to almost 3,000. And uh, I was the youth pastor there. I started taking young people on short-term mission trips. And that really got me interested in cross-cultural mission. And then I became the minister of youth and missions, which was basically excellent for budgetary purposes because I would make a proposal as youth pastor and then I approve it as missions pastor. But uh, we were taking young people across cultures. We were doing a a model of short-term mission trips out of Acts 1-8. So we would do something in our own community, something in our region, which was New England, something in our Samaria, which was cross-cultural local. Mm. and uh, But, you know, what we call uh, culturally different but geographically close, yeah. you know, and then we would go internationally. And that wore me out being two different jobs. So in the uh, mid-'80s, I was made the minister of missions, which I would serve in that position for the next 12 years, exclusively global mission. Mm-hmm. And that, for my wife Christy and me, became platform for lots and lots and lots of travel. And so we got to visit uh, basically, in those days, mostly Christian missionaries from the West, from the United States, doing work in other countries. Mm-hmm. But as we went along, we began to realize that if we needed to, if we really got to see what God was doing in the world, we needed to be connected to the global church so that when we were in Kenya, we were not just with Western missionaries, we were with Kenyan leaders. Yeah. And uh, and that was very, very life transformational 
Now, Paul, God has blessed you in so many ways. You're a wonderful speaker. You're a great writer, and you've written a number of books. Talk a little bit about your writing and how that fits into your calling to make missions a reality in the life of faith. Well, I had the privilege as a young Christian leader to be influenced by two people that had had a big influence on my life and by seeing the impact of writing. I took a course at Gordon-Conwell Divinity School with um, Elizabeth Elliott, who was, we had to write essays for her, and then I was working with Gordon MacDonald. And what I saw was if you put things in print, you could oftentimes appeal to an audience much wider than one you'd ever get to speak to. So I started writing books first about youth ministry. I wrote one book on being a younger leader based on uh, 1 Timothy uh, 4.12, And then uh, I started writing books about helping the average person in the pew enlarge their vision for the world, a book called A Mind for Missions, just practical tools to help people. Uh, Mind for Missions came out in 87, but then I did a book on youth and missions. I did a book uh, called How to Be a World-Class Christian, Mm. which is, you know, it's Missions 101. It's helping people talk to their Mohammed Muslim doctor at the clinic. It's helping people realize that world religions aren't just across the ocean anymore, they're across the street, those kind of things. And uh, most recently wrote a book called Western Christians and Global Mission and a follow-up to that called Great Commission, Great Compassion. But all of them are baseline reading. I don't think I'll ever be featured in any academic journals because my my youth ministry background says my first goal is to communicate to the listener, not necessarily to be exceptionally profound. These are wonderful, readable books. I want to ask you about Great Commission, Great Compassion, because you you point out in here the Great Commission comes in various forms in the New Testament. You list five, actually. Say a little bit about that. Uh, it was actually Dr. Timothy Tennant of Gordon-Conwell then, but now of Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky, that pointed out the fact that over the 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus gave the commission to his disciples in various forms, in various places, with various emphases. And actually one of the chapters in there, or two of the chapters, are based on the, the Matthew 28 passage, which we usually call the Great Commission, and then also Mark 16, 15 and following, I'll go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Then the Luke Acts, which has basically the emphasis on the Holy Spirit, the power coming upon you. You're going to be mm-hmm. witnesses beginning in Jerusalem. Matthew and, and Luke both have all the nations, which we know now is more all the ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, Acts has more the geographical breakdown which I might argue is more, almost a summary of where the book of Acts goes mm. in concentric circles mm-hmm. from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And then John is by far the shortest version of it, but it's Easter night, and Jesus, who has referred to himself in the Gospel of John more than 40 times as being sent into the world, now he changes who's sent. He says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. He who was sent becomes the sender. Exactly. Yeah. And if you combine that, of course, with him saying receive the Spirit, then the Luke-Acts model comes in that you need you can't be sent without the power of the Spirit enabling you. Yeah. And so it, it's woven together. And one of the chapters I try to give some of the main 
uh, themes that the gospel's for all people in all cultures and that every Christian is involved in it. It's not just for the special few who become missionaries or what we would simply call full-time Christian workers. As a matter of fact, along the lines of John twenty twenty one, the as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. Yesterday when I was speaking to the Sanford uh, University student chapel, I reiterated the fact that if they're follow if we're followers of Jesus, we don't have to ask if we are sent. Mm-hmm. We only have to ask where we are sent. Yeah. And if every Christian in every neighborhood, in every workplace, and in every office, and in every cubicle lived a sent life 24-7, mm-hmm. I think the gospel would have a much greater impact on our culture. You know, you're talking about this uh, diversity of peoples and languages. I'll never forget learning from John Stott this wonderful word. It's in Ephesians 3.10 in Greek, polupoikilos which he translated many-colored, the many-colored mm. wisdom of God. We sometimes translate the manifold wisdom of God or the, the diversified wisdom of God, the many-colored wisdom of God. That's from John Stott. Mm-hmm. And I think about the world today in which we live. We, 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 this, is, this is a part of the reality of the Christian faith, and we can no longer just encase ourselves in a particular culture or language group. Uh, this is not the world God has put us in. And you bring that out powerfully in, in this book. Well, it's actually an interesting story because as a child raised in Christian tradition, our mission was always part of our Christian heritage, if you will. We would sing at vacation Bible school. We have a story to tell to the nations. and But it was always this sense of from us to them. Mm. We have it. They don't have it. We're the saved. They're the lost. This kind of mentality. And as a result... In my own life, it brought about this sense of almost a subconscious triumphalism that, you know, in 1980s, we're going to lead the church towards the year 2000, which was a big theme in those days. And uh, I went to a conference in 1987 with my wife, and it was for younger leaders. They were from 60 different nations. And I'll never forget it because I went there as a triumphalistic American with money, and resources and feeling pretty proud about ourselves or how we're going to lead the global charge. And I left there 10 days later praying that God would not leave us out because I was meeting Christians who had gone through Soviet communism. I was meeting the Pali believers who had spent years in prison for their faith. I was hearing about people who were doing Book of Acts type things. Mm. I was hearing testimonies that was the Book of Acts come alive. And uh, and I was realizing God's doing it without us. And that's when I first came to realize that my country, United States, is like 5% of the world. And suddenly the reality that the, the work of those missionaries of the 1800s and early 1900s who had laid down their lives to bring the gospel is bearing amazing fruit. Hmm. And if we as Western Christians don't wake up and pay attention to that, we're going to miss the mainstream of what God's doing. And uh, so it was very, it was life transformational, and that really set the the table in my own life for what would later become the ministry we work with now, uh, which is dedicated primarily to working with leaders from other countries. So when I go to Nigeria, there might be 6,000 Nigerians and three Westerners. Wow. So it's not the traditional missionary force that I might have grown up with. They're there, 
but oftentimes, like me, in the background. You mentioned Dr. Timothy Tennant, our friend at Asbury Seminary. And he, and along with Philip Jenkins and uh, Lamansani from Yale, so many missiologists have been pointing out the fact that this uh, south of the equator, global south, that there's something dynamic about the Christian faith there that we're missing. And this, this became clear to me several years ago when I was in Spain as the co-chair of a theology conference. Most of the program had been planned by people from Western Europe, North America, and these were our questions. How can we be Christians in a postmodern world? And how do we deal with all of these rather abstract philosophical concepts, secularization? A brother from Africa said, you know, we're not worried about the postmodern world. We're, we're struggling to be in the pre-modern world. And he said, you know, we're not concerned about these questions, Heidegger and Husserl. We're, we're more interested in witchcraft and starvation. Our people are starving to death in exorcism. And so it was brought to me that maybe we need to be listening to our brothers and sisters that are facing issues that we're, we're, we're totally foreign to us because we're so dried up maybe culturally and in the faith. What do you think about that? Well, we've, we've intellectualized the faith and we've demythologized it so that it is, we live now, we go to heaven. Mm-hmm. But there's this thing that I forget who it was called the excluded middle, the reality of the spiritual world, for example, yeah. that every African, Asian, and to a lesser degree Latin American lives with. Yeah. You know, if you, there's a book by Mark uh, Knoll, like The Changing Shape of Christianity, and he says the church around the world is asking questions like, what's the unit of salvation? Mm. Meaning, if I get saved, do my ancestors get saved too? Mm. Yeah. These are not my questions, yeah. but they're their questions. You know, yeah. what's the role of the ancestors in my daily life, which mm-hmm. has to do with some of the East Asian religions, where you know your ancestors' spirits can come back to either to bless you or haunt you. Yeah. These are the questions they're asking. And what I found to myself is, I as a Westerner have this blind spot, where I refer to my own theology as theology. And I refer to their theology as African theology or Asian <laughs> theology, yeah. failing to realize that I am myself encapsulated in a culturally bound theology that has interpreted stuff according to my Western, usually individualistic mm-hmm. worldview. Yeah. And they're looking at, you know, when they hear, you will be saved, you and your household with a Philippian jailer. We hear, all right, the Philippian jailer's got to go home, share it with his wife, the kids are going to go to VBS, and they'll all get it saved eventually. Mm. Whereas the African hears that as he's getting saved, his family's taken care of. Mm. Yeah. Which, you know, we need to have the discussion so that all of us can hammer it out to see what the Bible actually really says by trying to not just take off our own glasses, but also see it through their lens. Exactly. Yeah. So someone said the challenge is is no longer to Christianize Africa, but to Africanize Christianity. Amen. So that we can learn something from our brothers and sisters. As you point out, often are facing uh, great stress and distress in their life and violence against them. And that's the world that we're a part of. Well, it's interesting. I, I would travel a lot to Africa, and it always struck me that almost every service I went to when the African preacher was preaching, East or West Africa, in Southern Africa, they would almost always preach out of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, or maybe, you know, uh, Nehemiah, maybe uh, uh, Ezra, or something like that. And then I read Philip Jenkins' book 
the the new the new changing shape or something like that of Christianity. But the subtitle is "Believing the Bible in the Global South," and he pointed out the fact the reason why the African is so attracted to some of those Old Testament stories is because they have unrighteous kings, land grabs, tribal warfare. I mean, it describes the world they currently live live in. in. Yeah. And so they choose that because it speaks most into their circumstance. Now, Paul, uh, this week at Beeson, the Go Global Week, has been uh, focused on prayer. And and we ask you to, in particular, help us think about prayer and mission. And you told a story uh, or an an example in your message in chapel the other day. I want you to repeat that because it was so convicting in a way about going home and looking in your closet. What are you talking about? Well, I'm always looking for ways to help the person who, like me, never leaves their state but wants to be involved in God's global world. And I would argue that the first and most basic place to be involved is prayer because God is, in a sense, inviting us into the throne room of God to influence the nations. You know, First Timothy 2, to pray for kings and rulers. I mean, I can influence the, the dictator of North Korea by my prayers. You know, I can have an impact on places I'll never travel to. But making it even simpler, because I'm a simple person, one day it struck me. I was putting my shirt on, and in the shirt it said, Assembled in Mauritius. And I had to go looking on the map to see where even Mauritius was. And it's this little tiny sort of Hinduized island in the Indian Ocean. And I got thinking about how did my shirt get from there to my closet? Mm Then I started looking at all of my clothes, and now the story that I told is to get people active in global praying by praying for the country on the label of their clothes. Mm. Because when you look in our closet, because of global trade and, you know, the uh, basically world markets, you have China in your closet, world's largest country, world's largest Muslim country, Indonesia. You'll have India, the world's largest Hindu country, and second largest Muslim country, et cetera, et cetera. So tell me what happened when you did it. Yeah, I, I was convicted because I, I, what's, where was this suit I'm wearing made? I'm, I, I took my coat off later in the day. It was made in Vietnam. So I said a prayer for Vietnam based on what you had challenged us to do in chapel. And one of the things that I also go beyond that now is to say a prayer for the person at that factory who made your suit. Because I don't have any idea who that is, but God knows who that is. And maybe our prayers, you know, one of the things about prayer, a quotation I think I got from Blaise Pascal, that prayer is a statement that God has given us the dignity of causality, Mm. meaning that we have the privilege of being part of what he's doing by our prayers. Yeah. And don't ask me to explain the mystery of turning the hand of God, but it just is we're commanded to do it. I'm going to do it. You know, you quoted that great text from 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul is writing in himself in great distress. He's been persecuted, and he says that God will help me as you pray for me. As you help us by our prayers. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's almost like Moses, you know, I'll go into the battle if you hold my arms up. And that's... For any person listening who has a missionary friend, they are counting on our prayers. You've been such a blessing to us uh, this week at, at Beeson Divinity School and on the campus of Sanford University interacting with with undergraduate students and trying to help us see the world through the eyes of the Savior's love, mm-hmm. uh, which it may be rather different than the eyes that we ordinarily uh, 
look on. So I want to thank you for your ministry. I want you to say just a little bit about the particular work you and your wife, Christy, are involved with Development Associates International. What is that? It's a a ministry basically designed to encourage, affirm uh, integrity and character in the lives of leaders in what we call the under-resourced world. Some would say majority world, but Africa, Asia, Latin America by and large. And so much of leadership development is uh, skill-based training, you know, better planning, better organization, leadership by vision, all these things, which are great. Mm. But so many times the internal transformation of the leader doesn't get enough emphasis. And so we've chosen to, to focus on integrity, character, spiritual formation, transformation of the leader so that the leader, like Jesus can say, follow, or like Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Wonderful. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Paul Borthwick. He's been our featured speaker here at Beeson in the Go Global Missions emphasis this year. A wonderful visionary leader and thinker and writer. Among his books, I want to recommend to each of you is a book called Western Christians in Global Mission and another book just more recently published, Great Commission, Great Compassion. Thank you, Paul, for this wonderful conversation. Thank you for your hospitality. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.